Well, good morning, and uh, I guess an early Merry Christmas to you. My name is Marshall. I uh, will be teaching on the passage that Jay just read. That's a great reading. It really captured the heart of this passage, which I think is the heart of this passage, is the heart. So, but thank you for being here. Uh, there's a lot of places you could be. Let's all make an agreement that uh, we're not going to, don't tell me at least what is happening in Qatar right now. Uh, I do care about the World Cup final. 1.5 billion people will be watching. Uh, to put that in perspective, 100 million people watch the Super Bowl. 1.5 million people are watching a soccer game right here. But you're here, so thank you for being here. Please do not tell me what is happening. I look forward. That will be my Sunday uh, nap. So. I do want to add a couple things about Christmas. This week is uh, Christmas. Christmas Eve is Saturday, 5 p.m. service. For the last two years, we've been outside. This year, we'll be back inside with our candlelit service. Uh, again, as Nick said, it is a family-friendly service, which is to say it is uh, less than an hour long. Uh, my little homily will be 6 to 8, 10 minutes max, uh, so it is something you can bring your children to. And then Christmas morning, uh, not often that Christmas is on a Sunday, but we are having our 10 a.m. service. It also will be short, considerably shorter than an hour. Uh, basically, yeah, uh, where you're PJs, if you're coming straight from Christmas, whatever, uh, I probably will not wear mine, but maybe, you never know. Very casual, very friendly, friendly, um, so hope that you can join us, understand if you don't. I do want to, uh, if you need a gift idea, I want to give you one. Um, uh, next year, uh, I will be doing this, my family will be doing this, and I'd love to ask, see if you, any of you want to join me. This is a one-year Bible, and we're selling a couple of these. They're available in the foyer in a couple of different translations. My family will be reading the New Living Translation. Uh, basically, this divides the Bible up through uh, the 365 days of the year. So if you've never read through the Bible, this is a way to do it. Like, that's so intimidating. That's a, that's a pretty thick book. Uh, but literally 15 minutes a day can get you through the whole Bible. Five minutes a day can get you through the Old Testament. Every day there's four selections. There's an Old Testament, a New Testament, a Psalm, and a Proverb. So maybe you just want to pick one of those four slivers. Maybe it's the New Testament. You can work your way through the New Testament uh, in, in, the, uh, in the course of a year. Uh, I think the mantra for this should be miss a day, skip a, uh, skip a day, miss a day. Like just if you, if you skip a day, just, just move on. Don't, don't try to catch up all the time. Uh, so it's a great resource if you're available. Uh, in the weekly email and the bulletin next week and the following couple weeks, we'll give more details, ways you can do it through an app or online. Or if you want to, I like, I'm a physical book guy, so I will be using uh, the actual uh, book. So if you would like to join us, we'll make announcements periodically throughout the year as we work our way reading through. Uh, God's Word. There's also audio versions, by the way, especially for like parents of young children. Like reading the Bible is like just probably not going to happen. Um, grace to you. Uh, a great way is to listen to the Bible. And uh, yeah, let me pray before we look at this passage. Our great God, we come to um, just some magisterial words that uh, even if we just heard read, they, there's a lot of heart in them. There's a lot of passion in them. And yet, God, some of us this morning are not feeling that. We're just amazed that we actually found ourselves in church. Uh, our heart is not inflamed for you, maybe not even for our family, for the things of our lives. And so, God, by your spirit, I pray that you would meet us wherever we are in the preaching and the teaching of your word, and especially these words from the end of Romans chapter 8. Be with us, Lord Christ, for your name's sake we pray. Amen. Before I uh, get started, I want to owe my, offer my debt throughout this series, especially on Romans 8, to, uh, to John Stott, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, and Paige Brown, who is my, actually my sister-in-law. But uh, one of my favorite children's stories, we're in a, I have a seven-year-old, and we're kind of putting some of the ch children's books aside. We occasionally pick them up. 
but one of my favorite children's stories that we don't read much anymore is No Matter What. No Matter What. It's a story of a small child named Small probing his parent, Large. Let me read. Small was feeling grim and grumpy. Good grief, said Large. What is the matter? I'm grim and grumpy, said Little Small, and I don't think you love me at all. Oh, Small, said Large, grumpy or not, I'll always love you no matter what. If I were grumpy grizzly bear, would you still love me? Would you still care? Of course, said Large, bear or not, I'll always love you no matter what. And then Small goes on to ask, what if I were a bug? What if I were, my favorite would be a crocodile. What if I were a crocodile? I'd still hold you close and snug and tight and tuck you up in bed each night. And then the end of the story. But does love wear out? Does it break or bend? Can you fix it, patch it? Does it mend? With time together, a smile and a kiss, love can be mended with things like this. But what about when you're far away? Does your love go too or does it stay? Look up at the stars, said Large. They're far, far away. But their light reaches us at the end of each day. It's like that with love. We may be close, we may be far, but our love still surrounds us wherever we are. Today is the end of a series we've been in since August. I'm a little bit sad to say goodbye to this series. We've entitled the series Amazing Grace. And we've defined grace as the unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God. And that that grace changes us. It makes us different. We started our sermon series by telling the story of Jacob. I love the story of Jacob. Uh, this I don't know what this says about me, but this lying, conniving, uh, thieving man who over the course of a lifetime God gets a hold of and by his grace changes Jacob. I think Jacob is one of the great illustrations of God's grace in all the scripture. And that's how we presented it. Jacob is an illustration of grace. And since the middle of the fall, we've been in the book of Romans. St. Paul's magnum opus, the theological high point of the scriptures. And we've said that Romans is the explanation of grace. And we'll actually come back. I know that we're only halfway through the book. We will finish the book of Romans at some point next year. But today is a natural breaking point uh, and a good place to take a break. But thus far in the book of Romans, Paul has developed this robust theology of grace. After introducing the book, chapters three, and after introducing the book, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about our brokenness, our condition as sinners before God. And then chapters 3, 4, and 5 are, are about the mechanics of how God saves us, the doctrine that we call justification. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 are how you come to faith. And then chapters 6 and 7 are primarily how we grow in faith. The theological word there is sanctification. And then Romans chapter 8 is about life in the Spirit. At least the first 27 verses are about life in the Spirit. So there's this robust theology, is Romans, about our salvation. How we're saved, how we grow, how we change, even our glory. But then we come to today's passage, and we'll primarily be looking at verses 31 to 39. And the reality is, these verses really aren't necessary, they're not necessary theologically. The theological, I'm using a big word here, the, the heavy lifting has been done. Intellectually, logically, the case for grace and the gospel of Jesus, it has been made. There's no need for these verses. But this is where the Apostle Paul shines because he knows that though the case has been made, the work is not finished. 
He has realized, the Apostle Paul, to quote Sinclair Ferguson, it is possible to be clear about the gospel in your mind. It is possible to be clear about the gospel in your mind, but not convinced in your heart. You feel it? I do. We might know these things. We might be able to speak about these things. But our lives are marked by guilt, by feeling ashamed, by being judgmental towards other people, by cowardice when we talk about our faith, or maybe to summarize it all, just a general, just a general meagerness about our faith. That's why they say the longest distance in the world is the 18 inches between our head and our heart. But in these verses, like small and large, in the book that I quoted a moment ago, the Apostle Paul just asks questions, as many as seven, four, five, how many, depends on how you put the uh, question marks. All these questions. And what is Paul doing? He's asking these rhetorical questions, not to say something new, but to drive home the point that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And the gift of these verses, the gift of verses 31 to 39, is that Paul both anticipates our questions, he knows what our questions will be, but maybe even more important than that, he gives a voice, he articulates the questions that we don't know how to ask. We feel them. But we don't know how to say them. And he actually articulates the questions. He's asking the questions that we feel but don't know how to give words to. So this morning, quite simply, my outline is basically I'm just going to follow the verses and use the questions. We'll divide it into three sections. And the first section I want to look at, the question is in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, now Paul has just spent eight chapters establishing that God is for us. While we were yet sinners, basically, as he says somewhere else, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or to quote Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. And Paul uses the weight of those eight chapters to answer his question. If God is for us, who could be against us? Answer? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition, exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else? He wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? The argument Paul is making to our hearts and to his own is if God loved us so much he's willing to give his son to die for us, if he's willing to give his son, don't you think he would give us all things in addition, everything else we need? This is the logic of heaven. If God loved us so much he gave Jesus, what could he possibly withhold from us? Now there is a little theological knot that I need to untie here. Because the logic is not, Jesus died for us, therefore God loves us. That is not the logic. The logic is not, Jesus died, therefore God loves us. The logic is, God loved us, therefore he sent his son. Now, if you were raised in in the church, in the evangelical church, you may have heard the acronym, GRACE. God's riches at Christ's expense. You ever heard this? 
It's wrong, <laughs> okay? It's actually wrong. You've never heard it from this pulpit. Uh, because it suggests, God's riches at Christ, it suggests that God only gave his riches because Jesus died. That Jesus paid the expense. It suggests that it's Jesus' death that makes God loving. No, 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 no. No. The correct way to say it is God loved us. That's the reason that Christ died. Or better yet, let's use the most famous verse in the New Testament, John 3.16. For God so loved, the love is prior. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Because he gave his son. Because he gave his son. Um, Because he gave his son, he will graciously give us all the things that we need. John Newton The pastor and hymn writer said this, Everything is necessary that God sends, and nothing that he withholds is necessary. Which is to say, we cannot see it, but God is doing everything. He knows what he's doing, and he's working all things together for good. We're not really going to look at verses 28, 29, and 30, but this is the thrust, especially of verse 28. Look with me. God graciously gives us all things. That's the way it says it in verse 32. But in 28, it says it this way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. And one thing this means, and I've said this before, is that we must increasingly learn to love our story. You must love your story. It's so easy for us to think that God is holding out on me. He's not graciously giving me everything I need. It's easy to think that so-and-so has a better life than me. But hear me out. Hear the Apostle Paul. Because God gave his son for you, he has given you. And I'm not talking y'all. I'm talking you. Specific person. One person. He gave you everything you need. And the Christian life is growing to learn to trust that, to love the story that God has given you. To love the story that God has given you. So that's the first question. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's nothing new. Again, the Apostle Paul is anticipating and articulating our hard questions. But second, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against us, against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Now, who brings a charge against God's children? It's an interesting question. Who is the who he's talking about? Uh, Who is the who that brings a charge or condemns us? I think there's a lot of people that could fit the who here. Uh, Our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, our children, our spouses, I mean, how many of you have gotten, you did that and you're a Christian? I've gotten that, and they always throw it on, you know, and you're a pastor? Uh, I get that regularly from my family of origin. (laughs) What are they doing? They're bringing a charge. How could you do, you say you're a follower, you say you're a pastor. How could you do that? And they bring a charge. All kinds of people bring charges and accuse us. And here's the deal. Most of the time they're telling the truth. Most of the time they're right. But there are two principal accusers, and it's not other people. The first accuser is yourself. No one knows more than you how guilty you are, how filled with shame you are. No one but you knows how you spend your time and your money. No one knows better than you what you have thought 
said and done. No one knows better than you. Your fant- We all have fantasy lives. No one knows that fantasy life but you. You are the only one who knows, except for your computer and your phone, you are the only one who, and maybe Google, but who knows, who knows your internet browser history. You're the only one who knows how much you obsess about those shoes or that game. But I think following Sinclair Ferguson, I think the main who is not just ourselves, our own conscience. I think it is actually our enemy, Satan himself. The top of of Satan's job description, the top of his job description is accuser. And Satan loves to accuse God's people of being unworthy. One of the interesting things about Satan, I think uh, Paige Brown said this, is before you're a Christian, uh, Satan tries to hide your sin from you. He tries to hide your need from you. But once you become a Christian, once you start following to Jesus, he wants to rub your sin in your face. He loves to take your record, the true record, and whisper it in your ear. And just how unworthy you are. You know what you did. You know who you are. You know you're just a fraud. Now there's a couple of times in the scriptures where the curtain is pulled back. And we see how Satan works and accuses it. We see it in the book of Job. Maybe less famously but more clearly and evocatively. We see it in Zechariah chapter 3. The picture is that Satan is standing next to the high priest whose name is Joshua. And Joshua, the high priest, right, the holy man of God, he is covered in filthy garments, suggesting that he is guilty, suggesting that he is filled with filth. And Satan is standing there accusing Joshua. And when God comes to Joshua's rescue, he does not contest the filthiness. He does not say that's not true. Instead, he covers him with a clean garment and says, This is a brand that I have plucked from the fire, the fire of his hellish life. And I have plucked him from that fire, and I have covered him with a clean garment. He does not say it's not true. He says, I have covered him. You see, friends, the answer to the accusations in our ear, whether it's Satan conscious, whatever it is, is the answer is not, I'm innocent. It's not in yourself. The answer is to look outside of yourself, to look to Jesus. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 34 is the Apostle Paul saying that Jesus is our advocate, and it's a four-point story of Jesus' life. He died, he was raised, and now he is ascended, and he is interceding for us. You see, it's not that the charges are not true, It's that they don't stick because Jesus is our perfect substitute and he pleads our case based on his merit, his finished work. And so what's happening in the throne room of heaven against all the litany of charges that are true against you and against me? Jesus is saying, I died for that. I paid for that. I was raised from the dead for that. I did it. It's on my account. And you see, friends, the only way to deal with the accusations, that little hamster wheel in your head, the only way to really deal with it is to drown those accusations with the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, the people who understand the gospel most, who get it the most, who are the most comfortable in their own gospel sin, are the ones who are most able to be open about their failures Because they realize not only did Jesus pay for those things, he continues to intercede for them. You've heard me talk about my RUF campus minister in the past. 
And he liked to say that you know, people would point out to him, you know, this, 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 you did this, and all. He's like, well, if you knew that, that's only half the story. I'm a lot worse than you think. That is understanding that Jesus with his finished work is interceding for you at the Father's right hand. Yes, I'm guilty, but he is my substitute. Take the accusations to Jesus. Don't try to save him yourself. So we've seen that Jesus is for us and that because of that, none can condemn. But now we come to the fundamental question that all of our hearts ask from time to time, if not from day to day. How much does God love me? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, verse 35, the Apostle Paul lists seven things that some might consider to separate us from God's love. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Now, realize when Paul was writing these words... The emperor at the time was a man named Nero, who in a very short years would feed Christians to the lions. He would put them on sticks in his garden and light them afire to uh, light his parties. The apostle Paul would be executed under his reign. That's a temptation to be separated from God's love. Verse 36 highlights persecution as something that could separate us. And then verse 38, the apostle Paul lists ten powers that could threaten to separate us from God's love. Verse 38, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and then this, this conclusion, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a triumphant display of God's love, saying that nothing can separate us from his love. It's interesting, if you were to portion out the words and the sentences, Paul saves this for last and spends the most time on this question because he knows this is the tip of the spear. This is it. The feeling that God does not really love me. He's not really for me. It's the temptation that our first parents faced in Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden, Satan appears to our first parents. And what does he say? Did God really say that to you? Did God really tell you you couldn't do that? Questioning God's love. A lot of people talk about the book of Job is about the problem of evil. But I love that Sinclair Ferguson points out the book of Job is not about, it's not about the problem of evil. It's about a righteous man that Satan tries to dissuade, to dislodge from the love of God. Now for you it might not be persecutions or distress, but what is it? Answer this question for yourself. What is it that makes you question God's love? Is it the suffering in this world? Is it the difficulty of your family life? The har harshness of your marriage? Is it chronic pain? Is it a wayward child? Is it a narcissistic parent? It is, is it superhuman powers like artificial intelligence and a chat box, natural disasters? Is it nuclear fusion? Is it the future of America? Is it the next pandemic? What is it that you fear could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Name the fear. But the reason that we know that we cannot be separated 
is not just the statement that God loves us, but look very closely at the last phrase here. What can separate us from the love of God? The love of God that is found, not just the love of God, it could, doesn't stop there, that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to see this, that each question that the Apostle Paul raises, he doesn't answer it simply with God. He answers it with what Jesus has done. Okay, do you see the specificity? What has God done for us? That's the first question. God did not spare his own son. Who condemns us? It is Jesus who stands in our place. And what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? It's not generic love of God. It is the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let me close with two stories. Both are true. One is more metaphorical application. One is gospel-saturated and poetic. In August of 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 255, carrying 156 passengers, crashed. 155 passengers died. One person lived. It is the largest sole survivor case in aviation history. The one person who survived was a four-year-old girl named Cecilia Shishan. And when rescue workers found her, they, the crash had been so bad, they assumed that she had been in a car on the road, that she hadn't been on the plane. There's no way somebody could have survived this plane crash. She must have been somewhere else where the plane had crashed. But upon investigation, they found out that she was, in fact, on the manifest. She had been on the plane. And as investigators pieced together the crash, the mystery of her survival disappeared. She survived because as the plane went down, her mother unbuckled her belt, got on her knees, and wrapped herself around her daughter and would not let go. Nothing could separate that little girl from her parents' love. Not tragedy, not disaster, not height, not depth. Not the flames that were to come. Nothing could separate her. And friends, such is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. He left the safety and the glory of heaven. He lowered himself. And he sacrificed his own life and covered our life. His love will not let us go. And ultimately, this is the message of Christmas that God loved us so much that he became one of us who would die for us, which is another way of saying that the shadow of the cross crosses the manger. Second story. George Matheson was a lawyer in Scotland in the 1880s, and he discovered he had a disease that would eventually make him blind. And as soon as he figured out that he was going to be blind, he went to his fiancée with whom he, he was engaged to be married. He went to this woman and said, I am going blind. Immediately his fiancée broke off the engagement. I cannot be married to a man who is blind. 20 years later, 20 years later, on the eve of his sister's wedding, his sister had been his companion, his caregiver, in many ways his only comfort in the things of this world. And she was getting married the next day, obviously to move out with her new husband. And on the eve of her wedding, George Matheson retired by himself and wrote the hymn that we sing here quite often. He wrote these words, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. 
O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its bar away that in your sunshine's blaze its day. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. Friends, Christmas is the beginning of God's loving determination to never be separated from us. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Pray with me. Our great God, I pray that you would write these truths upon our heart, that in some small measure the truths that are in our head would seep closer and closer to our heart today and this Christmas season. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.